Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. The audience is drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. The Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, will delve into this topic. I'm Nancy Karabjanian. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Now we join our A Matter of Facts podcast host, Nancy Karabjanian. When the alarm was sounded over the shuttering of many daily newspapers and infotainment exploded on local news, observers lamented that the public will end up woefully uninformed and victims of, we won't know what we don't know. Perhaps now, though, we have too much information. Deciphering reliable from unreliable, our starting point, understanding how and why we know what we do know and what we can trust. Helping us get there, Joan Delfator, who holds a PhD in English and an MS in clinical psychology. She's a professor emerita of English and legal students at the University of Delaware. She is currently exploring the topic of how we decide what we believe and what we don't, and how we react when our beliefs are challenged. Joan, welcome, and you are a also legal studies, not legal students, although they may very well be students as well. I don't ask whether they're legal. <laughs> <laughs> Gone are the days of when we could rely on the morning paper or the evening paper or that calming voice of Walter Cronkite. We have so much coming at us. So in the days back of limited choices, I think the lines were much clearer. And now it's uh, it's hard to tell the difference between reality and fact. What does that mean for all of us? I think it means that the locus of power has shifted. In the old days, there were gatekeepers. So somebody like William Randolph Hearst could decide what he thought about public affairs and make sure that every newspaper he owned said only that, and the people who read that newspaper got that viewpoint. Today, for good or ill, the gatekeepers aren't there anymore. And anyone can take to the internet, post something on Facebook, post something on Twitter, have it go viral, and have it be considered as true as what William Randolph Hearst would have published. And you know, it's not a clear line that uh, there was that much difference in terms of the accuracy. It's just the difference is who now has the access to our minds to try to convince us of what is true. And that really skews what we consider to be, you know, knowledge and, and even our beliefs. Well, it does. And the other aspect is when we used to have gatekeepers, we knew who the gatekeepers were. They were relatively few and they were identifiable. Today, that lack of accountability in terms of where the news is coming from makes a big difference. You may remember some years ago, the News Journal changed its comments to say that you had to put your real name, and that dramatically changed the tone of the comments. And that was actually a positive step forward. But when you look at things like Twitter and just the the fact that people feel that, that anonymous cloak of the internet gives them this right to be an informer of perhaps bad information. The other difficulty is you have two different kinds of problem going on here. You have some people who are lying and they know they're lying. 
There are some people who are passing along information they genuinely believe. They would pass a lie detector test. We no longer have standards for what level of education or what level of expertise does a person need to assess the truthfulness of something in a particular field. Anybody can decide just on the basis of their personal beliefs what they think is true or not and pass it along as true. And if you think that person is a good person, you're likely to believe what they say without stopping to think how do they know it's true. Some of this isn't new. The world is flat, <laughs> right? You want an example of how not new it is? When I started doing this research, I thought, wouldn't it be neat to see if there was fake news in ancient Greece? which is where most people think that Western civilization started. So what I found was there was a philosopher named Protagoras who is called the father of fake news. Look him up on Google. He's the father of fake news. So I asked myself, how do we know that? Well, it turns out Protagoras made a living coaching rich men on how to represent themselves in court because they didn't have lawyers then. So the man would represent himself. Protagoras was called the father of fake news because of the statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth. The truth is whatever you can make the right people believe. But how do we know that? So I looked some more. We have almost nothing Protagoras wrote. Plato, who was his enemy, his rival, they competed for the same students. Plato thoroughly disliked Protagoras. Plato said Protagoras said that which means that we don't know whether Protagoras was the father of fake news or one of its first victims. And yet we can never know that. And yet with something coming out today, I question whether we'll ever really know where the facts are in that as well. Because exactly. people will die on the sword telling you this is truth. Well, and the reason I brought up the Protagoras example is to show Many people interpret what's happening today in terms of post-Reagan America. This is an innate, an innate part of human nature. It goes back as far as we can find in recorded history. It's something we are, not something we do at a particular point in history. In a world, though, with uh, verifiable news organizations, going back to the morning paper, the evening paper, and Walter Cronkite, I think uh, people looked a little bit more out of the corner of their eye at things that we would consider today fake news. You know, stories in the National Choir about aliens landing or whatever. We, we were more um, aware that things were being exaggerated or perhaps not true because we had those identifiable sources to go to. We don't have that anymore. So does it just put everything in a wash of suspicion? I think part of what puts it in a wash of suspicion is not only what we talked about before about unregulated sources, but even the regulated sources. There's now such a blend between the newsroom and the advertising department, such a blend between the corporate owners and the newsroom. There was recently a big uh, discussion at the New York Times about exactly that situation. So I think what they're exploiting, the fundamental characteristic of human thinking that is being exploited here is we are not nearly as good as we think we are at telling the difference between what we know and what we believe. So how can we fix that? Let me give an example. Do you mind if I experiment on you a little bit? Just don't make me look stupid. <laughs> you will not look stupid, I guarantee. When you introduced me, you said, that I have a PhD in English and a master's degree in clinical psychology. Do you know that or do you believe it? I guess I believe it. I took it from your bio. Okay, so think about what you actually know. Which bio did you take it from? 
the University of Delaware bio. Okay, so one thing you know is that the University of Delaware put that on their website. Correct. Another thing you know is that Sierra from the Delaware Humanities Forum and the Delaware Humanities Forum are telling you that I am who you said I was. However, I did fact check the information that I received from them by going to the university website and confirming that it was the same uh, definition of your bio. So, exactly. That because was I'm what... not very trustworthy, I guess. <laughs> no, but that was what I was hoping you would say. Essentially, what you're doing, you're laying out what you know and how you know it and what sources you trust. But there's also a leap of faith there. For instance, you and I have met before. You've seen me around campus, but there are a number of things you would say about me that you assume are true. If you didn't think about it, you would say you know them because you've seen me with other professors, you see me in this environment. And that's how we have to function. If you think about it, how do we function as human beings? If we double check everything, how do you know that someone who looks just like me didn't mug me in that alley I had to come through to get here and come up here and pretend to be me? There's a point at which you can't keep fact checking. There's a point at which you have to take what you know and build a structure of belief. I'm glad you're it. not asking me to ask for your identification. <laughs> I probably don't even have I am it with a person me. who does like to operate on trust. I, I feel you do that every time you get behind the wheel of a car. You're trusting that everyone else is going to do what they need to do behind the wheel of their car. So, But I have to say, I am going to be a little bit more suspicious of the next person I meet who introduces <laughs> themselves to me. But even apart from that, think about... Think about how that can be exploited. We're talking about fake news and how sometimes people who genuinely believe what they're saying can inadvertently exploit other people, unwittingly exploit other people. Because of that gap in our thinking, we, unless we stop to think about it, we assume we know things that in fact we merely have reason to believe. So you start with what you know. That's the foundation. Then you build on it things that are clearly reasonable to believe in light of what you know. So you know what it says on my U of D bio. You assume, therefore, that's who I am. But then gradually it gets farther and farther away from what is known. And at that point, it becomes a matter of what seems likely to us. So we tend to believe what corresponds with the template we already had in our head without stopping to think that in this instance it might not be true. So tell me how that plays into perhaps, you know, the crowd mentality, the fact that, you know, what one person has in this building of their beliefs and what they think they know, and how that influences a mass. Okay, let's take a specific example. There was a rumor, it's, it showed up a few times now in slightly different forms, but the rumor is that thousands of Muslims went into the streets in New Jersey and celebrated 9-11. So sometimes it was 9-11-2001, sometimes it was an anniversary, but these thousands of Muslims were in the street celebrating 9-11. Uh, Governor Christie said this is not the case. The news media said this is not the case. And yet, if you read the uh, websites, if you read the posts on social media about this, People insist that that did happen because it fits their belief system about Muslims, about politicians, about the mainstream news. So they're perfectly willing to believe what to most of us would not be believable. That is that the entire structure of mainstream news decided not to report this, that the governor of New Jersey, a Republican, decided not to mention this, that nobody in those neighborhoods is acknowledging it. What we would consider wildly unbelievable 
people do believe because it fits the mindset they already had. It does not give me then hope that we can alter this, that we can, I do know that when you are, when someone explains to you how you are wrong in something that you believe, it does inform how you accept information moving forward. One's caught in a, in a, you know, inaccurate Facebook post, don't fool me twice. But it doesn't sound like you can change that because that's part of their core belief system. You want me to scare you some more? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, Nature Magazine, obviously a very good source, published an article in 2016. It used functional MRIs to look at brain scans of what happens physically inside your brain when someone presents you with evidence that contradicts your deeply held beliefs. So what happened in this experiment, uh, psychologists and neuroscientists in California chose a group of liberals. And they said they intend to do this with conservatives, but they said we needed a big group of people, and hey, it's California, Southern California. So they first gave these people a screening test, asking them, how strongly do you believe these various things? So they picked people who expressed the highest level of belief in certain statements. Then they put them in a functional MRI scan. And they presented them, while they were in the scan, they presented them with information that contradicted what they had said they believed. They alternated between political beliefs and beliefs about things that are not political. So they would ask things like, do you believe in global warming as a political question? But then they would ask, are cats better than dogs? That kind of question. They studied the parts of the brain that lighted up. I have the study with me, which is no use on a podcast. You can't see the pictures. What you would see, if you could see the pictures, is that different parts of the brain lighted up. When they contradicted political beliefs, the part of the brain that lighted up was different from the part of the brain that lighted up when they contradicted non-political beliefs. So if you know people of whom you would say, they're reasonable people, you can talk to them about anything, but don't talk to them about politics, they go crazy, there is probably a neurological basis for that. So does that go back to the fact that uh, there is some thinking that our political beliefs are part of who we are, part of part of our genetics, part of our family uh, upbringing, and that those things are formed early on and not changeable? They're not not changeable, but you're right. There is a deep investment. The rest of the study, they surveyed, after they gave all the information showing why your belief was not true, They then asked, how strongly now do you believe it? Not surprisingly, political beliefs changed less, were less likely to change than beliefs about other things. But then weeks later, when they surveyed people, the changes that had occurred, say, in whether you like dogs or cats, persisted over weeks. But what slight change there was in political beliefs reversed. And over time, they went back to the original thought. What's really interesting about this, the part of the brain that lighted up when non-political beliefs were contradicted was the part of the brain associated with curiosity and learning. But the part of the brain that lighted up when political beliefs were contradicted was the part of the brain that makes people turn in on themselves and become unavailable to information from outside. Now, it's very preliminary. It's one study, but it's intriguing. It's intriguing as well in that... um we almost have an instinct to fold our tent and to just, uh, you know, refuse 
to to move off of the mark that the mark in the sand, the line in the sand that we've established for ourselves. Well, and yet, how many people do you know who were liberals when they were younger and conservative now or vice versa? I don't know. I don't discuss politics with most people. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you get along. But no, certainly it happens. There are people who uh, will say, I used to be uh, whatever, and their views have changed. But it seems as if what changes people's views is their own experience and not an argument that's given to them. So, for instance, and this is now a hypothetical, if you had someone who had certain political views about the way prisoners should be treated, and then by some mix-up, they get unfairly arrested and they're in jail for a week, that could change their views. You know, another example, which is not hypothetical, is politicians who change their views on gay marriage when one of their kids comes out and says, I'm gay. I have friends who have changed their view on organ donation would not become an organ donor, and then they needed an organ in their family, and suddenly they were an advocate for organ donation. You know, it's one of those things, it has to touch your life for you to change. I think it has to touch your life for you to stop and think about the other side. One of the biggest challenges I had when I taught legal studies at the university was to get students to look at sources other than the ones that they were comfortable with. So if you had, say, a conservative student, they would tend to look at conservative websites to learn what liberals were thinking. Liberal students would look at liberal websites to see what conservatives were thinking. And you have to get people into that other world. I think those life experiences, like a child coming out and saying, I'm gay, is what it takes. It's almost like a slap upside the head to get you into the reality of another world that you just hadn't let in before. Without that offering of a reality, it does feel like our beliefs become almost self-fulfilling prophecies, that we would just take in that which we think will support what we want to know. Cherry-picking. The Catholic Church uh, in the Middle Ages came up with a good um, term for that. They called it invincible ignorance. At first, it meant something a little different, but the way it's used today, invincible ignorance means Nothing is going to change your mind. Uh, LBJ had a wonderful quote about that when he was president, toward the end of his presidency, when he was being attacked for his handling of the Vietnam War. He said, if I went down to the banks of the Potomac River and walked dry shod across the river, the headline in the Washington Post would be, the president can't swim. That would be an invincible position on the part of the Washington Post that nothing he does. I mean, you could say if for some people, if Hillary Clinton cured cancer, they would say that she was practicing medicine without a license. It feels to me that we are in a societal moment, though, where because of the tendency right now for comments online, comments politically, there's so much exaggeration and use of hyperbole the word literally in and of itself that everyone uses every six words, it's becoming pervasive. It's as though it's a license for people not to present information that they have fact-checked or that they have countered with whether or not they know it to be actually true and just present opinion as fact. Well, part of this, I think, goes to a kind of populism. My opinion is as good as yours. The problem is experts are not always right. And experts, as there was research by a psychologist named Daniel Kahneman and his colleague, uh, Amos Tversky. They looked into financial experts, financial advisors, and surgeons. And what they found was that experts 
express great certainty about things without recognizing how much of what they claim to be certain about is actually belief and not knowledge. And therefore, they are sometimes wrong, which undercuts them. And that provides the opening for people to say, my opinion is as good as yours because a doc doctors for years said take antibiotics for everything. Now they know that was wrong. So how can we trust them? So my opinion is as good as theirs. It's actually fallacious thinking, but it's one of the openings that people can exploit. And what is the danger of that exploiting? I think it blurs the line even more than it was already blurred because we are in a situation now where it has become almost treasonous to open one's mind to the other side to have a reasonable conversation with the other side. I can remember when, for example, Senator Ted Kennedy and Senator Jesse Helms worked side by side on issues of common concern. Today, leading senators in their respective parties could not do that because they would be considered traitors, because they would be subject to political ads such as we've seen, where, let me switch uh, parties to keep this nonpartisan, you could have a Republican candidate who is being undercut by being shown, shaking hands with Obama, something like that, where simply by association, the working together is not okay. That tends to put us into silos. And so, we can't sit down together and talk over how should we handle maybe politics, maybe medicine, maybe financial planning, but we are being pushed into taking a position and sticking with it because we took it. Let's put some of the um, academic research aside for a moment, and let me ask you, what are your go-to spots for information? Where do you go to inform what you think you know and what you now believe? <laughs> that is mainly what I use my Twitter feed for. So on my Twitter feed, I follow Fox News, Fox and Friends, a, a variety of conservative comment, commenters. Bill O'Reilly has the cutest corgi. He keeps putting pictures of his corgi on Twitter. Uh, then I do the same thing with the corresponding MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, uh, Stephen King, who also has a very cute corgi, so they could talk about corgis if they ever get together, uh, George Takei and so on. Also, I, I follow on Twitter sites like Hoax uh, Slayer and uh, Snopes, mm -hmm. PolitiFact, fact-checking sites. I follow uh, mainstream uh, news organizations, NBC, ABC. I follow uh, non-American English-speaking news, BBC, Australian news, Canadian news. And essentially, as I read through it, I never believe or seldom believe anything I read when it just happened, because they're under pressure to leap in there and get the information down. They're saying somebody's dead. I don't know that he's dead. He's probably going to show up tomorrow. They were in such a hurry Jim Brady, to, to Frank publish. Reynolds. Yeah. Or remember uh, Richard Jewell at the Olympics mm -hmm. when the news media basically convicted him and it turned out the guy didn't do it. So for one thing, I wait a little while to see, to let it set to see how it shakes out when we have a little bit more information. And then I tend to go with the fact-checking sites primarily because they provide not just a bottom-line statement, but where they got it. And I can go verify where they got it if I want to. 
one of the things that tends to bother me, obviously, a career in journalism is the definition of news. People confuse journalism and news. So sites like places like Fox News is more opinion and analysis. It's not news. And that really bothers me because is the reputation of a journalist is so fragile that there's no intention to, there's no gain to get it wrong. But when you're offering analysis and opinion, you're, you can, you can be a little bit looser and people confuse the two. And that really, that's one of the things as a journalist that really bothers me. I know that you are, are working to spread this word to help people get guidance in this area. So tell me about your approach that you're going to be offering through the Delaware Humanities Speakers Program and what you're going to do with that. The talk I'm giving through the Delaware Humanities Forum is available to adult groups in Delaware. It's also available to high school classes. I can come in and speak to high school classes. I can adapt it depending upon what the particular group wants. One piece of this we didn't have a chance to get into today is why is political lying protected the way it is under the First Amendment? Political lies actually enjoy a very high level of legal protection. So one question is, why is that true? What is the value? We've been talking about where the problems are. What is the value or the perceived value of lying in politics. Well, let's take a moment and talk about that before we get into into your series. Let me give you, again, I think specific examples are better than generalizations. Mm-hmm. The state of Ohio passed a law which said that you cannot tell pants on fire, flat out lies during a political campaign with the intention of influencing the campaign. That applied to the campaigns themselves, to PACs, to advocacy groups. Well, what happened was a group called the Susan B. Anthony Fund, which is a pro-life organization, wanted to put up billboards saying that Representative Stephen Dryhouse had voted, for, had voted to use taxpayer money to fund abortion. Now, in fact, what he had done, he was one of the sponsors when the Affordable Care Act was first being debated in 2010. Dryhouse was one of the sponsors of an amendment that would have said no money from this bill can be used for abortions. That amendment failed, and Dryhouse voted for the bill anyway. That was the basis on which the Susan B. Anthony Fund wanted to put up a billboard saying he voted for taxpayer-funded abortion. When I use this in the talks I do for the Delaware Humanities Forum, I ask people, how many of you think that billboard was true? How many think it was false? And quite often, I get a more or less equal divide. It's an example of why one reason why the courts don't want to get into whether it's political lying is because there's going to be a difference of opinion about what a lie is. Well, the billboard company refused to put up the billboard because Ohio's law applied not only to the Susan B. Anthony Fund, but also to the billboard company went through a series of court hearings. 2016, the final decision was that law was struck down as unconstitutional. So it is unconstitutional to have a law that says you cannot tell lies in politics. And one reason was a case you may remember, the Stolen Valor case, where um, a gentleman claimed to have the Congressional Medal of Honor when he did not in fact have it. He also claimed to have been a, a hockey player for the Detroit Red Wings and to be married to a Mexican movie star, none of which was true. So the first sentence of the Supreme Court decision is, quote, lying was his habit. Now, how bad a day are you having when the United States Supreme Court officially says you are a liar? But the court ruled in his favor because the court said it is a dangerous they didn't use the term slippery slope, but that was the sense of it, to allow the government to pick out one topic 
and to say you cannot lie on that topic. The government says you cannot lie under oath. The government says you cannot lie when you are trying to get money from someone by fraud. But in situ you cannot shout fire in a crowded theater if there's no fire. But in those situations, you're being punished for the effect that your speech has. That's different from picking out a topic and saying you can't lie about that topic. So that's where we are at the moment. So tell me then again how you're going to spread this word through uh, talking to groups and yes. working with Delaware Humanities on their speakers program. Exactly. I can adapt the talk in whatever way a particular class or a particular adult group would like. We can talk about the reason why the speech is protected. We can also talk about a series of openings. We've talked today about a couple of gaps in the way we think that people can exploit to manipulate us into thinking the way they want us to think. There are many more of those gaps. So the talk can be essentially how to protect yourself. As I mentioned before, I'm going to be teaching a course at the University of Delaware in the fall called How to Read an Election. And a lot of that is going to be about how people, how the news can deceive you, either deliberately or unintentionally, and what can you do about it? How can you defend yourself? What can you stop and think before you go galloping toward reposting something you're actually not that sure of. You've given us a lot to think about. I won't be asking for IDs from everyone that I meet, but I, I will you continue mine. to be a skeptic and always make sure that I know what I think I know is what I know as it informs <laughs> my beliefs. Joan Delfator, thank you. Thank you very much. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.